Uh, it's a privilege and an honor for me to be able to spend some time sharing with you today. My name is Jordan Roberts. My lovely wife, Holly, is on the front row here. And we have the great privilege of serving our senior pastor and our mama, Pastor Kathy Miller. She leads this house, and we're honored to serve alongside of her. And so thank you for allowing me the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, I, here's how I write sermons. They usually start with songs and me working out. So my prayer closet is my gym in my garage. That's where things start. And I get super hot. Yeah, I get in the mirror like, yeah, look at me. Woo! And then I get start believing God can do anything. And I can stand on the pulpit and preach. And so I get my confidence up and then I sit down with a notepad and I start writing. And then we trim it way down. And then sometimes we wind up with a good sermon. And so here's why I'm sharing this with you today. Um, this has been one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to write. It was so easy and so hard all at the same time. Because I want to say what God is saying. And I want to be true and genuine to what He is saying. And not just my hyped up rock and roll workout train. Because, you know, uh, our, our senior, who was our senior pastor and the founder of this church, he and his wife together, Bishop Tony Miller and his lovely wife, Kathy Miller, they together founded and birthed this church. And at our, the deepest center of our foundation is a heart of worship and prayer. And it's almost like a hot and cold in a tornado. Those two things feed each other. And that what we want more than anything here at the gate is to be a people of worship and prayer. A people of intimacy with God. And when He says go, we go. And when He says stop, we stop. When He says jump, we're going to jump. And when He says sit down and be still, we sit down and be still. Because if we don't have Him, nothing else matters. And these are the things that I've had in mind as my pen and notepad did some work this week. And so if you will pray with me here in just a moment, pray with me that I say what I need to say today and that the Lord will use that to minister to you. So let's pray together. Lord, we come before you humbly as the gate church. And Lord, we pray what I just said, that Lord, if we don't have you, we don't have nothing. And that, God, these walls and this ceiling and the 48 air conditioners and the lights and the sound systems, God, these things are for you. They're not for our entertainment. They're for your ministry. And so, Lord, we ask today that you minister to us. Lord, I ask that you use me as a vessel. And that, Lord, you will help me to speak your words. And that, Lord, people will know the difference when God talks and when Jordan talks. And that the chaff will not contaminate the message. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. And we're hungry for you. Our eyes, give us eyes to see what you see. Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying. Lord, we're not stuck in a rut. We're not going through motions and performing routines God we're looking for you and we're listening for you and so Lord we ask that you honor our request to see you and hear you today I pray it in Jesus mighty name amen and amen and amen now I'm not going to start with a scripture 
Are you going to be okay? There's going to be plenty of scriptures, I promise. So there's going to be lots of scripture. We're just not going to start with one. So I've got three stories that I want to tell you today, and I'm talking to us about prayer. And so if I had to title my sermon today, I would title it this, Powerless, Paralyzed, and Persecuted. Powerless, paralyzed, and persecuted. There was once a group of people. They were called the nation of Israel. Today we call them Jews. Rewind the tape, we call them Hebrews. Rewind it even further, they were the nation of Israel. They were Israelites. And God had a sacred vow and a sacred promise through their biological father and their spiritual father Abraham and the promise was this that out of one man I will build a nation and through that nation through Abraham and through his descendants I will bless all the families of the earth and what we now know clearly is that Jesus was that promise fulfilled because Jesus was a descendant, both biologically and spiritually, the father of our faith. Jesus fulfilled the faith of Abraham. He fulfilled God's promise. Jesus came, and that's why we're all in this room today. That's why you are here. That's why I'm here. Most of us, as I look around, I know most of us, we don't always eat at the same restaurants, and we don't have the same hobbies. We don't come from the same socioeconomic backgrounds, but we are in this room together today because Jesus has fulfilled that promise. I'm looking around. I see all races. I see different continents. I see different economic statuses, and we're here today because Jesus fulfilled God's ancient promise. I don't know about you, but that excites me a little bit. That God has his own timing and he has his own way, but he always keeps his promises. And so when I look around and I see black and white and every color in the spectrum worshiping together, I say, look at how God keeps his word. Because that's bigger than one man. That's bigger than one building and it's bigger than one church. Look at how God is faithful to his word. It stirs my heart. And I start wondering, if God can do that, what else would He like to do? And my heart becomes full of hope. Because I say, it's not all lost and it's not over yet. In fact, the best is yet to come. But there was a time when people could not so easily look out around them and be filled full of hope. Because those same people that God had made a promise to found themselves in slavery. And so we know the story towards the end of Genesis that God sends Joseph into the Egyptian kingdom. And that Joseph arranges through God's wisdom for them to be saved from a famine. And so the Hebrews, the Israelites, found themselves going to Egypt for food because that's the only place that there was food. And so one thing led to the next, and the people found themselves in slavery, really because the Egyptians were afraid of them. So Pharaoh and the nobles of Egypt said, there's more of them than there are more of us. And if a war comes, they might join the other side, and then that'll be the end of this big Egyptian party and us floating down the Nile, worshiping gods with animal heads. We're having a big party if we're noble Egyptians. And we said... 
If the day comes that the Hebrews turn on us, that's the end of the party. So we better make slaves out of them. See, that's the first thing the enemy wants to do when he's afraid of you. He tries to get you enslaved to something. And so the generations go on and the word says that there came a time when the men who were ruling Egypt and the men who were leading Israel didn't remember how that one time they had worked together. And so the Israelites are full-on slaves. Every day they labored under the Egyptian sun, which I've never been to Egypt, but I have been to Africa. And I'm here to tell you, friend, that the sun in Africa is an entirely different animal than it is here in North America. And so every day they labored under the Egyptian sun, making blocks, building bricks, so that Pharaoh could build palaces, and so that the nobles could enjoy a life of leisure, and so that being born Egyptian made you entitled every day. And as I was writing, I began to imagine what would it have looked like if I had grown up a slave? What if I had watched my dad every day of his life get up in the morning and there's no spark in his eye? Knowing that nothing's going to change and that he's going to keep doing the same thing he has been doing for 30, 40, 50 years. Coming home drenched in sweat and fine Egyptian sand caked on his body. Sweat caked in his hair. coming home with bloodstains on his shirt because he dropped a block and an Egyptian taskmaster would whip him for it. I imagine what it would be like or what it would have felt like to watch my mama have to go and wash somebody else's clothes and tend someone else's house and teach Egyptians how to write Egyptian while she had to neglect us. And I wondered what it would have been like to watch my parents go through that and every day that went by I knew that my time was coming and that I would have to step into my father's shoes and take up a yoke that was too heavy for any human to ever bear. I've wondered what it would be like knowing and looking around and watching my brothers give in to the things that we humans do when we are desperate and we are hurting. You can't tell me that the Egyptians did not, that it didn't break, or excuse me, that the Hebrews, it didn't break their families. And that men desperate for feeling something looking like life would, uh, what we called, hop the woodpile and start seeing other ladies after dark, or he would go out for a walk and come back a little bit late. Or I wonder if mom wouldn't indulge in Egyptian substance to try to numb the pain. And then my friends that I grew up with, watching them give in to the same things, bound by substance, bound by the desires of our fleshly nature, if there would not have been rape and murder, Theft, rampant in our community because we're oppressed, we're desperate, we're looking for something to take the pain away, even if it's that long. And just imagining it was tiresome to me. And I'm grateful to say today that I don't know what it is like to live the life of a slave. I'm deeply grateful 
that I've not had to experience the way the Hebrews did. And if I had to imagine one word to describe what that life would have been like, I believe I would have felt powerless. Powerless. Because after all, what can one Hebrew boy do to overturn the rule of Pharaoh? At that time, a world-dominating empire. What could I do? Pharaoh has palaces, temples, pyramids, armed guards who are well-fed and well-provisioned, well-trained. Egypt had a full-time professional army, which was the true sign of an empire, particularly in that day. Look at all that they have. They control the food. They control the work. What hope do I have when I feel powerless? I wonder if maybe you've ever asked yourself those questions. God, I don't have power to change these things that have got me and my friends and my family, my community. I don't have the power to overturn this cycle. I don't have the power to break the wheel. It's difficult to think about it. It's very quiet in here. If you're watching online, you could hear a pin drop in this room today. Because many of these things that I'm saying in some ways or another are real life for us. So the truth is, <clears throat> showing up to work every day and someone whipping you is not necessarily what constitutes slavery. What constitutes slavery is when we're a slave up here. And every day of my life, I'm laboring under a demand. I'm laboring under a yoke that I don't seem to have the power to break it. And that looks different for different people. Some people, freedom would look like having some money in their pocket. And there are some people who have millions in their accounts and they're just as bound by the money. Some people satisfied their addiction in a burned out house last night with a needle. Some people satisfied their addiction this morning when they got in their new Suburban. And before they drove to church, they pulled out the pill bottle. See, some people numb their pain illegally, and some numb it with a legal prescription. Powerless. I don't know why God waited so long. I don't have any reason. I don't have logic. I don't have something I can tell you to explain it to you. And I wonder myself when I read this story, and if I'm imagining I'm a Hebrew slave, my first question is, God, what about the promise? What about what you told Abraham? Why is this taking so long? God, everything looked good in the beginning, but it's not going so good at the moment. Why didn't we fight the Egyptians when we had the chance? Why didn't my granddaddy, why didn't my daddy fight the Egyptians when they first started taking over? Why didn't we fight them when they first started trying to put the shackle on our ankle? Why? Nothing makes you feel more powerless than asking questions that there's no answer to. 
And God waited and He waited. And I have my theories, but I have nothing I can share with you in confidence about why God waited. But one day there was a man named Moses who he himself, although he was not raised under the whip of the Egyptians, he was raised in their palace. And he knew how empty and hollow their power and their self-superiority was. And so when he saw his people being mistreated like that, something in him switched. And what Moses learned firsthand is that when you try to deliver yourself or your friends through your own power, you'll almost certainly wind up becoming a murderer of some kind. And you can try to hide the body in the sand, but see, the sands are always shifting. And so what you hid one day will be exposed eventually. And so Moses does what some of us do. We run. And we reckon with ourselves. We settle with ourselves that everything is okay hanging out in the desert in Midian. Modern day Saudi Arabia. Just below the Sinai Peninsula. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of that part of the world. There's not much going on there if you don't like sand or rocks. Now, if you love sand and rocks, you would love western Saudi Arabia. Trust me, great place. And so Moses finds himself living among foreigners, married to a woman that we believe pretty strongly today, married to a woman of color. In no way was this bad. This was excellent. She was the best thing that ever happened to Moses outside of God, in my opinion. Because she had a perspective that Moses didn't have. She was the daughter of a priest. And I can't help but wonder if the priesthood being alive in Moses' in-laws wasn't what helped him that day when he's walking through the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep and he sees a burning bush. And so it says that he's walking by and he sees a bush burning, which is not necessarily uncommon in this extreme desert environment. But he notices for double take, the bush ain't burning up. And he said to himself, I'm going to go see what that is. I wonder if Moses knew in that moment that when he turned aside and he said, I'm going to go see what's going on over there. Do you want to know why he did that? It was not his human curiosity. It was his spirit. There was still a spark in Moses' spirit that said, there are supernatural things that happen in life. And when I see a bush burning and the bush is not consumed, it might be something spiritual. It might be God. And so he turned and he walked and then all of a sudden the bush says, Moses, are you hearing me, friend? Moses. So he goes and he walks into a cave and Moses has an encounter with God and the scripture says this, the Lord speaking to Moses, don't come any closer, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You know what God is saying? I'm the God that I remember. And I remember who I've been making promises to. And I'm the same promise-making, promise-keeping God has met you in the cave today. 
And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. I don't know about you, I have felt the presence of God. And I know that because of Jesus, I don't have to hide my face. But there are some times when I get in His presence, I find myself doing this. Because when you get close to God, not just your Father God and your Daddy God who always puts His arm around you, sometimes God shows up as the promise-keeping, promise-making God who He says, I set in order the times and seasons of the earth. And when He comes, when the King comes... Sometimes we find ourselves afraid to look. And the Lord says this. Moses still hasn't said a word. Good for him. The Lord says to Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. Won't you look at your neighbor and say, He heard the cries. That was pretty good if uh, we were one of the traditional denominations, but we're, we're the new thing, so we're going to have to do a little better than that. Look at your neighbor and tell him, say, He heard the cries. Ah, much better. Well done. Verse 8 says, So I, God speaking, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. And I have come down that I will lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites and a bunch of other ites live. Listen to what God says. Look. I can just imagine God standing on a rock, pointing his holy finger and saying, Look, see what I see? The cry of the people of Israel has reached me. And I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. Holy moly. This has to be, hands down, one of the most dramatic scenes of the Bible. And so here is what I've come to share with you today. Is that long before there was a Moses, and before he had his staff of authority, before he threw it down and his serpent ate the serpents of Pharaoh's witch doctors, before the Nile turned to blood and before the frogs and the bugs ate up and invaded everybody's crops and houses, before the firstborn was struck down, before he shoved his stick into the Red Sea and it parted, before any of that, there were normal, everyday Hebrews who were laboring under a brutal yoke and they were crying out, Moses wanted to see the people of Israel set free. And we know that that didn't go well. But who wanted the people free more than Moses was God. He was Jehovah. And when he showed up, he didn't show up for Moses. He showed up for the people. 
And he said, I've been sitting on my throne and I've been watching how brutal it is down there and I've been listening and enough is enough. Because why? Because people who are powerless have been crying out to me and I am listening and enough is enough. And I come to tell you today, friend, you might not be Moses. But you might be a Hebrew who has been laboring under a proverbial yoke. It looks different for all of us. But you have been laboring and you have been wondering, when is enough going to be enough? When am I going to see the promise that God has given our ancestors? When am I going to see the words fulfilled? How long do I have to lose a brother to this, lose a sister to that? When is God going to move? And I come to tell somebody today, you've been praying and you've been crying and you've been wondering, when is God going to move? and I'm here to tell you Jehovah God has been listening and He has been watching and your cries and your prayers are coming up before Him. And I wonder sometimes if we don't worry, if we don't obsess, if we don't discredit ourselves because we wonder about the how to pray or the what should I pray. Almost as if it's like a math formula where if I say the right things, I can get God to do what I want Him to do. Uh, and I think about it, and then I try it, and I go, ah, that didn't work, that didn't work. So I can't get it. Let me try this over here. I go read this guy's book, you know, and, he, and he's a good guy. You know, he's solid, smart, well-spoken, you know, pie. And okay, he wrote this book right here, and I'm going, I'm going to get this book, and I'm going to decipher it. And I say, do, 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 beep, beep. Math formula. I'm gonna do what he did, and God will do. He'll do that for me. He'll do that. He'll do what I want. I don't know if that's how prayer works, because I'm reading in my scripture right here that when God says I'm about to deliver a nation, when He said I'm about to deliver a nation, God wasn't worried about did they say in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. God just said. I've been watching and I've been listening and there's some people down there crying out to me and I've had about all of it I'm going to take. And so, Moses, pick up your sandals and get your stick. We're going down to see Pharaoh because I've got some people I'm going to deliver. Sorry, I got a little country right there. I'm sorry. So you can take out that dinner with you and tell them I learned a new redneck where they get you. Get your stick. We're going to see Pharaoh. Psalm says this, that you keep track of my sorrows and you've collected my tears in a bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. My enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know, God is on my side. I praise God for what He has promised. Yes, I praise the Lord for what He has promised. I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? I will fulfill my vows to you, O God, and I will offer sacrifice of thanks for your help. For you have rescued me from death. You have kept my feet from slipping, so now I walk in your presence, O God. In your, li- in your life giving light. So I've only got three points today. Three stories, three points. Here's point number one. You're going to want to write it down. It's really good. 
Okay, you can put it on Twitter. You don't have to give me credit. Everybody think you come up with it. It's going to be great. Listen, I know it's a lot of preachers doing that now. A lot of people tweeting vintage Bishop Tony Miller now, and they ain't giving Bishop Tony Miller no credit. I see a lot of heads nodding, so I see I ain't the only one been noticing that. Makes me feel real good. Now, if you out there tweeting Bishop and you ain't giving him credit, we love you, but we see you. <laughs> we know. So here you go. When you are powerless, don't focus on what you want God to do. Focus on who you need Him to be. You see, you were quiet because that was ministering to you, so I'm going to read it one more time. When you are powerless, don't focus on what you want God to do. Focus on who you need Him to be. Because God didn't tell Moses everything that was about to happen. He gave him a little demo with the stick because Moses was struggling, y'all. He really was struggling. It says even God got a little angry with him. He said, Moses, you get down there like I told you and quit back talking to me. Moses couldn't have known what was about to happen. God knew. And so before all the miracles, God showed himself faithful to Moses in that cave with one little demo. Don't downplay your demo. Now, I have to take a little rabbit trail. And I labored over how to say this. But um, I think it's necessary. There is a calling and a missional task on this house. What do I mean when I say that? It means we've got things we're going to do, but how we do it is very important. And our, our former pastor, our founding pastor, Bishop Tony Miller, he fought his whole life for people of all races to worship together. And thank God. Thank God. And he was a father in the faith, and now we find ourselves with a mother. And the Lord is speaking through our corporate spiritual mother saying this, that now we must also focus not to leave one behind and take up a new. We've done this. We're taking it with us. And now we must also stand for generations to worship together. From the oldest to the youngest. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about it. You can clap. I'm super excited. Now, I'm not done yet about that little point. And now the Lord said this to me this morning in the shower. Okay? Don't vision it. Just listen. Lord, I wouldn't do that to you. Lord, help us. Now, I'm speaking to everybody 40 and under. I'm about to be 35, so that's my ballpark. 40 and under. Now, listen to me. I grew up in this. I grew up doing this. And I have seen a lot of good. I've seen God do amazing things. But now, it's time for some of us to look in the mirror and ask a question. Am I going to keep showing up to church, or am I going to start being the church? Am I content to let my mom and daddy keep serving God full of fire, and me just ride the coattail, me just ride the ski rope, or am I going to say, you know what, I'm going to build my own altar because there's things that God is asking me to do. Now, I love you, and I'm saying it from compassion because I'm having to do that. I'm having to look Jordan in the mirror and say, Jordan, it's time. 
There are things that you've let slide because we was good to let mom and daddy do it. Now it's time for us to man up and take some responsibility and put my hand on the plow. And when I don't know what to do, I'm going to get in my prayer closet. And when I run out of words to say, I will pray in tongues. Bless God because my generation needs me. It needs you. And so if I had grown up a Hebrew... And this crazy old dude who's been living out of the desert toting a stick comes in telling me I need to listen to him because he's been talking to a bush. Forget about it, Boomer. (laughs) Forget it. Because Moses didn't come down. He was not Instagram or Twitter savvy. I said to a pastor friend of mine down in Texas not long ago, I said, I do most of my shopping for my clothes on Instagram. And he got the most bewildered look on his face. What? No, when Moses came out of the desert, he didn't come with Air Jordans. And then I can't keep up with the hair part now. It's changed, I guess. His hair wasn't parted the right way. He didn't have the right pants on. But he come out of the desert talking about, I've been talking to a bush. And God was in that bush talking to me. So let me help the 40 and unders. We can't run the boomers off. Because let me tell you, they look funny, they talk funny, they say things, and we go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But listen to me, some of these boomers sitting on these seats right here, they had a time in their life when they were talking to a burning bush. And if we want to walk out and we want to have everything that God is promising us, we need to be quiet and put the iPhone down and put the coffee down. And when boomer says, I've been talking to a bush, you need to listen. Because God uses all people, even people we don't like. And so what made Moses special was not how hip and trendy and polished he was. It was that he was on the backside of a desert listening to a bush. Now I want to say this to you boomers. I love you. And when I look at you, the light bulb went off this morning. I thought, you know what, Pastor Kathy, the, the boomers, or the, I say that with love. I hope you all know that. that. The, the baby boomers were a generation that they tended their sheep. And they've walked around the desert and they're saying, God's going to show up. God's going to show up. God's going to show up. And they would show up and do church. They would show up and pray. We're going to collect the tithes. We're going to wear a tie. We're going to do all the things because we're believing. We're going to see a bush. We're going to hear God talk to us. The day's going to come that God's going to come and he's going to do it. And they were faithful in the desert when nobody's looking. And so I want to say thank you. Thank you to my elders. Thank you to my seniors. Thank you to my veterans that you've been showing up. You've been staying faithful. You kept coming. You've seen pastors come and go even in this church. And you said, but I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus. One foot in front of another. I'm going to wear my tie and my tie pin. And I'm going to put up with these kids in their skinny jeans. Thank you. Thank you for staying true. But remember this, we can't pour new wine in an old wineskin. And we can't get mad when the generation that God chooses to deliver, they're covered in tattoos and ears and pink hair sticking out all this way, and they say things like transgender and da-da-da-da-da. Listen, you can't get hung up on that wine because God is trying to do something that's bigger than Egypt's language. He's trying to deliver a nation and fulfill His promise. So don't run the young millennial and Gen Z guys off. Make room. Is that okay? Is that okay?
Okay, and I'm moving right along. We got to really hurry, okay? Because I am long-winded. I'm from church at two hours, okay? So, hang with me. Everybody doing okay? When you're powerless, don't focus on what you want God to do. Focus on who you need Him to be. What did Moses say? He said, God, who am I going to tell him sent me? He said, you tell him I am sent you. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at some young folk. They, I don't know that they got that. Let me move right over here. I got some veterans right here. When Moses said, I'm going down there, okay, I'll go. I'll throw my stick down. I'll do it. But when they ask me who sent me, what do I tell them? And God said, you tell them I am that I am sent you. What is he saying? He's saying, I am everything that you are going to need. I am the blood on the doorpost. I'm the blood in the river. I'm even the dude that comes down and allows the firstborn to die. I'm the dude. You need me. I am that I am. So you might be looking at situations feeling powerless. You need to look at your problems and say, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know that I am is on my side. And I am is going to get me through this. I am will deliver me. Thank you, Christian. He felt that. That's point one. Point two. Trust me, these are shorter. First was powerless. Two is paralyzed. There was a story of a young lady named Hannah. And she was in love with a man named Elkanah. I call him Elkie or Elk just because I like that. Okay? So he's a good man for all counts. She was a good wife. One problem. Hannah had a barren womb. She was unable to give birth. She was unable to produce in a way that society thought was needed. Hear what I'm saying here. If you were a lady back in the old days and you couldn't have babies, that was way not good. And so you were really looked down on, shamed and ridiculed. And so Hannah, she's I'm a woman of virtue. I'm a good person. I'm married to a good man. I'm over here doing my part. It even says that Elkie loved Hannah more than his other wives. Now let's just take a short detour. You think you got problems now? Could you imagine having two wives in the same house and then them fighting each other and they both coming to you wanting you to fix it? May God have mercy on those men who went before us. You talk about a man. Man is what they were. I love one woman, and God has graced me to love her and only her. I could not imagine Elkie having to referee between Hannah and her housemates. God bless us. But you know, when you can't produce in life and everybody else around you is, it's paralyzing. And the scripture says that the ladies who shared the house, who shared the marriage, and the ladies in the community, the Bible says her rivals, it says that they constantly were picking at Hannah. And so as I thought about Hannah, I envisioned a grape. And that Hannah was like a grape thrown into a vat of circumstances that she had no control over. She could not help that her womb was barren. She couldn't help that. And yet the people in her life continually stomping on her. Talking about how she couldn't do it. Well, God must have cursed her because she's full of sin and that's why she can't have no baby. 
Well, Elkie probably ain't going in there and seeing her at night because she got that new hairdo and he don't like that. And so, but she's too hard-headed to change for her husband and that's why they can't have no baby. If she would make him fried pork chops, he would stir up his testosterone and then he would go in there and they could have a baby. But she won't do it. She don't know how to make pork chops like how her mama knew how to make pork chops. You know, as you went to middle school same as I did. There are some ladies... You want to talk about toxic? I'm talking about straight rat poison. Kill you, dead. Their words sharper than an Apache's knife. Take that scalp like that. Mean, mean as a striped snake is what my daddy would say. And so Hannah finds herself being overrun by these wicked, evil, twisted, bitter women stomping on her every day. Well, when you stomp on a grape, the juice runs. You let that juice sit a minute, it turns into wine. And so she didn't know it, but her enemies trying to frame her reality with their evil words, it was draining the hope out of her. Just like the juice of a grape drains out, it was like her hope drained out. And her desperation started to come up. How do we know this? Because as time went on, they go to a special worship service. So uh, Elkie and all the family and the people in the village and the tribe there, they go up to a special offering to the Lord. And it's like a party. It was like a wedding. And so why do I say that? There's music and dancing and food and there's wine. And everybody's having a party because it's so good to worship God. The people would celebrate. Look at how He freed us from Egypt and now we have the milk and honey that He promised. And, and we're good with Him and He's good with us. It was a party. Except for Hannah. Because as her hope drained out, so did her taste for life, the senses of life. Music had no tone. Watching the fire and her friends dance together didn't do anything for her. The food had no taste. Why? Because I can't do what I know I'm supposed to do. I'm paralyzed. I didn't choose this. This, has, this circumstance has happened to me and I can't explain why. And Hannah did the best thing that she's ever done. And when the partying was over, the Bible says when the eating and the drinking were done, that means everybody's partied out. So everybody went home with their Hebrew hangover, whatever that looked like. They went home with their Hebrew hangover. They're going to get a good night's rest because in the morning we got to go to church. Except not Hannah. Because, see, she didn't have a hangover. Because Hannah was hurting. And so she goes into the house of the Lord and she starts crying out. Crying out to God. And this is what the scripture says. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on my misery and remember me and not forget your servant, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be upon his head. Verse 12 says, And she kept on praying to the Lord, and Eli the priest observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart. And her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought that she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? 
but put away your wine. So I come to tell some people today that you may look around in life and say, I feel like I'm paralyzed. And I feel like that my enemies are framing a future for me that I don't know I want to live in anymore. Here's what I want to tell you. When you feel powerless, you should pray. When you feel paralyzed, you should pray. When you feel paralyzed, you should pray. Because we serve a God who He opens wombs that are closed. And so sometimes Him opening your womb may look like Him telling you what book to read and He opens your mind and you can believe for something new. He is a God that works through our minds. But now you hear me right here. Our God is a God who works miracles. He works in mystery. He does things that we can't explain. Faith in our heart reaches out and says, I believe that God can make a baby come when couldn't nothing else make a baby come. I can't tell you how, but I know that I got a baby now. That's the God that we serve. And so when you feel paralyzed, don't give in. Because Hannah crushed like a grape, pouring out her anger, her bitterness, her disappointment. She poured it out to God. And God took it like wine on the altar. And He said, I'll take that sacrifice. You'll keep your word, and I'm going to keep mine. So guess what Hannah did? She came and she poured out her pain on God's holy altar. And she poured and poured and poured to the point that she's just praying it. She's out of words. Oh God, if you'll give And the priest who was mad that he wasn't at the party didn't understand. Hannah got up from there knowing something's different. Listen to me, friend. You keep pouring it out to God. You keep telling Him and you keep praying and you keep saying, God, you give me that son, I'm going to give him to you. You give me that business, I'm going to honor you with it. You give me that person I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with, I'll put them on your altar every single day. You keep saying it, you keep saying it. That baby that run off and won't answer your calls, you keep, you keep saying their name and you keep saying, God, if you bring them back to me, I'm going to put them on your altar and I won't never let anything come between you and them. I'll stand, I'll stand, I'll stand. God, I'm devastated. I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know how, I don't know how, I don't know how, but God, you can do it. Don't you quit, my friend. Don't you quit. Because Hannah got up from there, and I believe this, it was not the blessing of the priest. I believe it was what she knew to be that just because God is silent don't mean that he ain't listening. And so she got up from there, and I think that she knew deep in her heart that God didn't say nothing to me directly, but I know that he's heard what I've been saying to him, and I've got the courage to go back one more time. She went back home with Elkie one more time. She went back home with those enemies one more time. And God bless her for her courage. She went back one more time. And guess what? No word from the Lord, no lightning bolt from heaven, no airplane with a banner saying, Lord, uh, Hannah, I'm sending you a baby. No prophetic word. She just went back one more time. Look around in nine months and what happens? Ooh, 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 ooh. There's a, there's a baby in there. Some of you may have been looking around and saying, is this all that there is to my life? If this, is this what my efforts have added up to? 
Please hear me. You are a prime candidate for God to come down and burst something through you that you could never have imagined. You will look at your husband. You'll look at your wife and you'll look at your kids and you say, I can't explain to you why it didn't happen before, but it's happening now. But here's all I know. I was paralyzed and I went to an altar to a God who always listens and I poured and I poured and I poured. And next thing I know, I'm pregnant. I wonder, is there anybody in here saying, God, I want to be pregnant? Now, you hear me. You might be believing for a baby, baby. But I'm speaking spiritually. Most of us, we're crying out and we're hungry. We're saying, God, we want to birth something. God, we want to birth something to you that is sacred. God, a, a prophet who his words don't fall to the ground. We want to we give birth to a generation that they sing and they declare the word of the Lord and it don't come back void. God, use us. When you feel paralyzed, you should pray. Psalm 31 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. That's the word of the Lord to people who are listening to me, and you say, I'm paralyzed. You keep pouring. Keep pouring. Here's your prayer point. I'm going to write this down. When you're paralyzed... It's not about how you pray. It's who you're praying to. It's not about how you pray. It's who you pray to. And now I have a word for all of us that are veterans of the church. This is not a declaration. It's a question. Shame on us if we have become so put together and so polished and so prim that we have turned God's sacred altar into a place where people come in our door and they are paralyzed, but they feel that it, what they have to give God is too ugly. It's too emotional. It's too tear-filled. Sometimes when you're in pain, it's not just, oh God, I'm in pain. Sometimes it's, God, why? Shame on us if we have become Eli's that we're not making room for people that have got a pain that is ugly. Shame on us if we have said, well, you have to come. Do, do, do. Yes, our Father who art in heaven. I'm not mocking the Lord's Prayer. I'm saying if we have become religious and we're not making room for Hannah's that are so tore up and overlooked and abused, if we're not making room for Hannah's, what in the world are we doing? Hannah goes back into her life. I'm going on this little rabbit trail. This will help you. This changed my life. I went through a difficult season in my life, and there were, I knew a lot of people around me who were not happy with me. That's the nicest way I know how to say that, that they were not happy. Now, to be fair, I earned it, okay? So I was deserving of all the malice that was pointed in my direction. And this little lady, who she's about this tall and lives in the mountains of North Carolina, she looked at me and she pointed her little fingers. And she's looking, if you're looking up at me, you're short. She looked up at me. She's about that tall, but she's got authority about that she's this tall. Right? So she looks at me and she points her little finger 
And she says, The Scripture says that God will make a table for you in the presence of your enemies. She said, God will do that. But you got to have the courage to keep walking into the room with the people that are your enemies, trusting that God will do it. So here's what I want to say to some of you. You may be saying, I don't know about this church. I don't know about the guy sitting on the pew with me. I don't know about the people that I do life with. It has been so messy, and they have been so hurtful to me. I have had about all I can take. You listen to me. You find the God of your courage, and you say, God, I'm going in there one more time because I know that if I keep showing up, God will build a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. Don't you let the people that don't know God how you know Him talk you out of your baby. Don't you let people who don't understand what you've been pouring out, don't you let them tell you you can't have your baby. If you're paralyzed, keep praying. Point three, we're almost done. If the band will come and all those lovely folks. There once was a man named Paul and he had a close friend named Silas. God had sent them on an apostolic mission to Philippi. Now you got to know this, that Paul was a church planting stud. That dude, he was like a nutcracker. So you give him a city that's a hard nut to crack, and he and one other dude would go in there alone. Full of pagans, you name it, demons rolling around everywhere, sick people, paralyzed people, just busted people in general. And Paul would say, let me off the boat. I'm ready, son. You drop this dude off somewhere, and guess what? When he left, there was a church there. Now, he's a stud. He's an apostle. That's what the New Testament says. And so Paul and Silas were on their mission in Philippi trying to get a church off the ground. Paul saying, I've done this before. I know my business. I know what I'm about. Except one day things take a bad turn when they cast a demon out of a young girl that some local businessmen had figured out how to make a profit off of her telling fortunes. Now there's a sermon right there, and I remember Bishop Tony Miller preaching one. It's real good. So as we're going around finding people who are oppressed and we're setting them free, the businessmen get mad because when we're setting people free, they can't take advantage of people no more. And so the businessmen get mad, and they do what some businessmen will do. The first place they went, they went down to the sheriff's office. And they said, now, sheriff, we're going to withhold our next campaign contribution if you don't get down there and get a handle on these Hebrew boys casting demons out of people because they're hurting our pocketbook. Our pocketbook is your campaign. You ain't never heard nothing like that before, have you? That must have only happened back in the old Macedonian days in Philippi. So sorry if I got the history part of that wrong. But anyway, they go and they get Paul and Silas, and it says this, that they, uh, that they brutally beat them. And so what they would do, they had a stick or a cane. Uh, the best consistency is the flexible curtain rod in your house. So when I was an intern, Pastor Kathy, you just ignore this part right here, because we were holy and perfect when we were interns. But when we were interns, we used to play a game called the pain game. And the pain game was that everybody would pitch in money, and you put the money on the table. And everybody put their hand on the table, and one person had the, the curtain rod. And so you would expose your leg, and your buddy would come beside you and whoosh, cross the leg. And just let me tell you, you thought your mama switched you bad? You wait till Lee Pearson, who's about 6'6", 
corn-fed West Virginia coal miner rears back with his arm as big around as your leg, and he whips you across the leg with that flexible cane-like pole. When I just between me and you, I almost always won those. I'm pretty proud of that. So we were taking a few licks to the legs. Paul and Silas were beat all over. So they were bruised and bloody and thrown in prison. They were shackled around the feet, it says. And I don't know if that means they couldn't stand up or if they couldn't sit down, but one way or another, they're immobilized. And I don't know about you, but if I was Paul or Silas, I would have been about ready to quit the ministry right there. Because, see, I have it so much better than Paul and Silas, and there have still been times that I've said, I believe I'd about rather go do something else with my life. I think I'd like to open a bowling alley maybe, instead of be a pastor. Now, if you own a bowling alley, more power to you. That's not a comparison. I'm just saying, I feel like I would get along, people, get along with people that bowl a lot, you know? But then these guys that are whipped and chained, they didn't throw in the towel. And I've thought about that so much. Why didn't they throw in the towel? Because I'd been ready to quit. Because when my skin's all busted up and I'm bruised and I'm bleeding and I'm sitting, I don't think that the same guys who were so generous with the punishment were very generous with food or sanitation. And when I'm sitting in other people's filth and I am beat and bruised, I start asking questions like, hey God, uh, what the heck? Because I just, I didn't come here to get rich. I didn't come here to write a book. I come here to start a church. I'm not the baddest guy walking around. I just want to start a church. And I find myself in prison because I'm persecuted. I wonder if you've ever felt persecuted going to your family and talking about your faith. You ever felt persecuted at the dinner table? Why do you keep going down there to that church? Where they sing and talk in tongues and won't you give your money to them? Why do you do that? Or I wonder if you've ever had a hard time at work trying to explain why you go to that church that they get so excited down there. Well, you know, I think God, I think of Jesus just like petting a little lamb and, and yeah, he's, just, he's just so good and, and I don't know why everybody's got to get so tore up and excited like that. It's called being persecuted. You might come to a church where your kids don't want to come with you. You can't get them to. You may have lost business deals because they find out you're a believer. Maybe you work in a hospital and you get mocked because you say you believe in healing. Now, these are hypotheticals. I wonder how it is that you are persecuted. I wonder if you have ever felt like I'm in a prison and I'm beat and I'm locked up. I tried, I tried so hard at that marriage and I failed. I tried so hard with them kids and I failed. But when you're powerless, you should pray. When you're paralyzed, you should pray. And when you're persecuted, you should pray. Because the scripture says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly. Mm -mm. No, you didn't get it. They're in prison, beat. You don't get a trial. No trial. 
No, no phone call to your lawyer. No bail. No bond. You're in jail. And you're beat. You and your butt. He can't get you out. He's in there with you. You have no ally. You have no friends in that city. What are we going to do? If you wrote a letter back to headquarters in Jerusalem, it might take six months for it to even get there. And so what do they do? They're praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners are listening, on, listening in, and then suddenly, oh, friend, are you hearing me? It is not about what you see when you go home and start looking around. It's not about what you see when you look at your bank account. It's not about what you see when you're standing in your business watching the front door hoping customers walk in, hoping the phone rings, hoping the emails come in. It's not about what you see when you're persecuted and you start praying. There's one moment where you're in chains. There's one minute you're in bondage. There's one minute when you're, there is no hope. But then suddenly... Then suddenly, our God, He comes sometimes and it's like a cannonball. You said, I just thought it was just another discipleship night. I thought this was just another Sunday morning. I've been praying and I've been singing all this time and then all of a sudden, boom! There's an earthquake. There's a shaking. There's a rattling. Suddenly, hear me church, hear me. We can't forget that our God does things suddenly, sometimes. And so don't you give up. You say, I'm tired and I'm weary. I'm beat down. I don't know if I can keep going. Don't you quit praying. Don't you quit singing. Don't you quit. Don't, don't say, well, last week I didn't feel nothing. Don't quit because God comes suddenly. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, drew his sword. Barney Fife, what's going on here? He draws his sword and he says, Lord, all these prisoners are about to get out. Them same crooked policemen, what are they going to do to me when they figure out I'm the one let all the prisoners out? And he's about to take his own life. Holy cow, what is God doing? Maybe things sometimes they get a little worse before they get better. What is going on? Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Everybody's here. It's okay. The jailer called for the lights. And so men rushed in with their lanterns and they fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought, so the jailer brought Paul and Silas out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Pastor Kathy, as I was writing this, I had this image flash through my mind. I had an image of you standing at the door of the jail and people running before you saying, What do I have to do to be saved? Give the call. Declare it. The doors will open. And they'll come to us. They'll come to this church. They'll come to this altar. Oh, I can't see it with my eye, but when I close, I can see. I see people standing. I see people in the aisles. 
I see people standing back by the door doing like this, waiting for their chance to come down. And they're saying, they're saying, what do I have to do to be saved? Because I can't explain how the doors just flew open. I can't explain why the foundation's got a crack in it. I can't explain why the shackles aren't on my feet. But I know that in there, there's a shaking going on in there. What is going on in there? What do I have to do to be saved? Oh, close your eyes. You can see it with me. They're full. It's full. It's full. The parking lot, there's cars in it. There's cars out here on Wilshire backed out in the road with their turn signals on, waiting to get in the parking lot. They're going to come to these altars and they're going to say, what do I got to do to be saved? There are some jailers that wanted to take their life out there and they said, I've reached the end. The forces of darkness are too much. They're going to hear a shaking in here and they're going to come running down right here. Right here. You remember it. They're going to come right here and they're going to say, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour, the night jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all of his household were baptized. I'm believing we're going to baptize people that 48 hours before they're about ready to fall on their sword. I'm believing that there's going to be married couples that had the divorce paper signed on the kitchen counter and they said, I hear a rumbling, I hear a shaking. There are people down there at 7700 that they're praying and they're singing and we're all looking at and saying, we're beat up, we're bruised, it's been a long road, we've been believing, we lost our senior pastor, what are we going to do? We're praying and we're singing and there's people, they sign the papers and they're going to say, we're going, we're going to give it one more chance. We'll give God one more chance. There's people that were going to take the OD amount of their pills. They were going to take the OD amount of their needle. And they're going to say, what is that sound I'm hearing? What is that shaking I feel? And they're going to come right down here. And they're going to go, how do I be saved? So remember, if you're a sent one and it hasn't been going well and your proverbial church plant has turned into a prison you pray you pray and when people aren't grateful and they abuse you you pray third point final point because when you're persecuted you don't focus on the prison you focus on the people and in my closing thoughts, here's what I want to say. Our senior pastor has made it a priority for prayer that this will be and is a house of prayer. My hardliners and my veterans, you know this. And we're not going to back down that this will be a house of prayer before the Lord. We're having discipleship classes and we're talking about prayer. And you say, I don't know nothing about it. But what you're saying kind of interests me. Well, then you get here for discipleship because we're going to pray. We're going to teach and share about prayer. You need to be here. Take time and invest in yourself. Because I love you. The Oklahoma City Thunder can't make the shackles fall off of people's feet. The Dodgers downtown can't make shackles fall off of people's feet. Top golf, bowling alleys, and movie theaters. I love all of it. 
But that don't make shackles fall off of people's feet. People who, when they're powerless, paralyzed, and persecuted, when they pray, that's when deliverance starts happening. That's when new life starts coming. And that's when shackles start falling off of people's feet. So my prayer teams are coming. The band is going to play. You stand on your feet with me. I'm going to pray for you. And then if you want prayer for any reason, our prayer teams are going to be here. And they're going to pray with us. Just close your eyes right wherever you're at. Just close your eyes and just steal your hearts and let me pray for you and then we're going to pray together. Lord, I pray for your people and Lord, I hold them up before you. Lord, you see each heart. You see each person's experience. You see their pains and their questions. And Lord, I declare right now that they are going to feel your presence that they're feeling it right now that in the midst of it all they are not alone so I declare over you church we are not alone God is with you and he is with us and even when God is silent it doesn't mean that he's deaf So I speak hope to you, church. I speak hope to you, mama. I speak hope to you, husband, that God's not done yet. The story's not over. Now you pray with me, church. Lord, come and be with us. Lord, in all the mud and the blood and all the mess, God, we need you. God, we're crying out for you. God, we're calling for you. If you don't do it, it can't be done. But God, we have faith in you. We've heard the stories. We've read them. We've heard the tales being told. And God, we want that same God who's a deliverer. Come and deliver us. The life-giving God, come and give us life. The same God who breaks foundations and cracks shackles. God, come and deliver us. Set us free. Whatever it looks like, whatever it sounds like, God, come and be with us. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen and amen. Church, when you go home, no matter what happens, you pray and you don't stop praying. Don't worry about what it looks like, sounds like. You go home and you pray. You go home and you pray. We love you. We're honored to spend some time with you today. You have been a tremendous audience. Thank you so much for allowing me to speak to you today. You're dismissed. Go and be blessed. If you want prayer, our prayer teams are here to pray with you for anything that you need. We love you. Have a great afternoon.